Welcome to another episode of Acts of the Blood God, an independent RPG podcast. I am your host, Kat Bailey. Joining me as always, my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, Kat. Uh, unfortunately, I have to rescind what I said last week. I am no longer the proud owner of an Xbox Series X. Walmart Canada canceled that pre-order on me. Oh my God, does that still happen? <sighs> Apparently it still happens. I thought now that the initial hype was over, maybe it wouldn't happen anymore, especially with the Xbox Series X, which frankly, is not quite as in demand as the PlayStation 5. But yeah, they not only canceled my order, but didn't tell me. I only found out because I looked at my bank account and said, wow, who gave me like $500? Oh, oh, wait a minute. That's a Walmart. Something's fishy here. And I have to be going to Walmart anyway to pick up some stuff. And I asked at the desk and they looked it up and they said, yeah, it got canceled. I said, why? I don't know. Can I like put in another order? No, not really. So that's my life. Walmart doesn't give anybody $500, not even its workers. <laughs> Especially not its workers. But what they do give them is a really annoying announcement, like every half hour, reminding them to stop and clean. I'm sure they're getting paid for it. That's horrifying. <laughs> it is a very dystopian world we live in right now, Kat. All right. Well, in order to help us escape from this dystopian world, we're going to talk about RPGs this week. Specifically, we're going to be talking about the indie RPGs, that we're looking forward to in 2021. We'll also be talking about some of the RPGs that are coming out this week in a new segment we like to call the RPG Release Corner. And we'll be talking about the news as always. If you enjoy the podcast, can I recommend that you follow us on Twitter? I am there at the underscore catbot. Nadia is at Nadia Oxford. And you can follow Acts of the Blood God on our social media channels. That would be Blood God Pod on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoy the show, please consider subscribing to our Patreon. Starting at the $5 level, you can have access to every episode a week early and ad-free, in addition to our Television of the Blood God miniseries. Right now, we are doing a Witcher Watch, and we just finished episode six, which is the worst episode of the season. I like how the tweet that you used to accompany that, oh my god, worst uh, episode ever tweet was that really god-awful-looking golden dragon? Good job. <laughs> it really did look like an episode of Xena, didn't it? It seriously did. I was just, wow, that is so 90s. I am nostalgic, except it shouldn't be like this because we live in 2021. If you're a little bit skeptical of our Witcher watch, first of all, the show does get better after the first couple episodes, even if episode six is very bad. And yes. it's like kind of entertaining. You should check it out. I, I'm enjoying it more than I thought I would. So uh, there we go. More fools me. And the second season should be coming out maybe this year or was it next year? I don't remember. Sometime this year. Who even knows anymore with the pandemic? Yeah, we're, we're very much in who even knows mode all around the world. In the meantime, at our $10 level, we have the Pantheon of the Blood God and we are in the midst of voting for March's entry. And this time we are going for Final Fantasy in honor of the Final Fantasy ranking, which proved very popular. And we're going to be doing even numbered Final Fantasies, Nadia. So the choices are Final Fantasy IV, Final Fantasy VIII, Final Fantasy X, and Final Fantasy XII. And to our immense surprise, Final Fantasy VIII has a clear lead, while Final Fantasy X is dead last. Oh, to my, to our like clear, just to my clear disappointment. I'm not I'm disappointed that four is not at the top, but I guess I was expecting that. I suppose I'll be playing eight after all. I guess I'm not surprised because Final Fantasy four is somewhat close to Lufia, too. And so people might not be really jiving with the idea of playing through a 16 bit RPG again. But I kind of was expecting Final Fantasy ten to be in the lead with maybe eight and second and four and third and 12 at the bottom. But instead, it's been eight and 12. Now, that is very interesting. I thought that four would at least be second, but uh, I think you're right. Maybe people just uh, are a little bit done with sprites for now. Also, I think people just want to hear us talk about something that they haven't heard us talk about quite as much, hence 8 and 12. That's true, because I could sit here and talk about Final Fantasy IV for like three episodes if you let me. In the meantime, we recently wrapped up our game club for Lufia 2, and our Pantheon of the Blood God episode for Lufia 2 should be available to $10 listeners tomorrow as of the release of this podcast. It will be out on Tuesday. And we're going to do a full deep dive. We've changed the format ever so slightly, Nadia, this time around. We are basically going to be making the case as to whether Lufia 2 should be in the Pantheon, and then we will decide at the end. 
Yes, so please tune in to be amazed. Okay, let's continue on to the news, Nadia. In our top story, it's not necessarily RPG related. I just want to talk about it. What the heck is happening with GameStop? (laughs) Oh, my goodness gracious. It took me a while to really kind of understand what was going on, but people out there have uh, actually written up really good metaphors using like snakes and gorillas and bananas (laughs) that a five-year-old could understand. And the way I understand it, hedge fund people were buying up GameStop uh, stock and selling it immediately and then waiting for it to go down so they could rebuy it. I don't know. Basically, they were making a profit and it was a little bit shady. So the quote unquote good guys started buying GameStop stock. So it went way up and the hedge fund guys are out of a lot of money and they're really pissed off about it. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate it. I I do kind of appreciate it. Um, I can see why the people who are buying the stocks are really angry because they're changing the goalposts. They're changing the rules as far as I know uh, by saying, no, you can't buy or sell anymore. This is over. The game is over. Uh, Hello, we live in a capitalist hellhole, yes, but what about the free market? If there's anything that should be available, it should be these people buying these stocks and selling them at the and basically, they're beating these people at their own game, and the people are taking their ball and going home about it. They're very, very upset about the whole thing, and I don't think they understand quite what's coming at them because this is the the internet versus old money, and it's quite a show. I'm not dwelling on this too much. I just think that they should suck it up because they were already kind of gaming the system. It wasn't like they were buying the faith, the stock in good faith because they're like, oh, GameSpot, stop. I really, I'm yeah. a big believer in this uh this old line retailer that sells video games. They were just trying to make a quick buck and the internet got wise to it and uh, turned it around on them. I think it's funny. I think it's funny. I think they were beaten at their own game and now they're being very spoiled about it. And it really kind of shows how the whole system is rigged against people. You can't win because this old money will, will come in and thwart you and change the rules. It's, it's a very revealing sort of event that's going on here. Yeah, all of the stock apps tried to lock people out and while allowing the hedge funds to continue to trade, and it just showed how rigged the system actually is. It's actually to the point where the Republicans and the Democrats are actually in full agreement on Twitter about the, how this is kind of a dirty thing that they're pulling by locking all the, 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 the stock apps and saying that's not what this should be about. You should be able to trade and sell freely. So the fact that all these politicians who were, you know, just a couple of weeks ago absolutely hating each other's guts – are coming together and agreeing on this one thing shows that uh, it's pretty big. I wanted to put Ted Cruz agreeing with AOC at my 2021 political bingo card. No, me neither. But there you go. If it was on your bingo card, you've already got one. Continuing onward. So the Mass Effect Legendary Edition is coming out before too long. And we have started to hear some interesting information about the creation of the various Mass Effect games. And this one jumped out at me, Nadia. So there's a character in Mass Effect 2 named Jack, and Jack is a character that you rescue from space prison. Uh, She has a shaved head, lots of tattoos, kind of is pretty hardcore. And you can, if you're playing as female Shepard, you can flirt with her hardcore throughout the, you know, throughout the bulk of Mass Effect 2. But if you get to the point that you're actually going to be in a relationship in her, she just says, no, I don't want to. And you're like, oh, really? She... Thanks. (laughs) Thanks. <laughs> I've Jack. been rejected. I've been rejected. Well, it turns out that Jack was originally supposed to be pansexual and able to be in a relationship with female Shepherd. But the reason Bioware decided not to do it at the last minute was due to the controversy, the sex box controversy from Fox News back in the day. God, I can't even believe that was a controversy. Wouldn't talk about a, a simpler time, I suppose. <laughs> People getting all up in arms because these really bad character models are having sex with alien ladies. Yeah, that was around the time of hot coffee, I think, wasn't it? And everyone was freaking out about fully clothed polygons grinding against each other. I actually, when I was at PAX West a couple years ago, I played that entire sex scene. <laughs> and it was, I was so there. cheesy. <laughs> <laughs> I was doing something, an interview or something, and I had to walk in late. But I walked in just in time for the sex. But it wasn't even really sex. It was just a really cheesy romantic dialogue. And then they were kind of like, you know, the camera. We didn't see anything. No, of course not. It was just like at at best awkward flailing between polygons, like I said. 
it was an earlier time, unfortunately, because the only character that female Shepard could date really was Liara Tosoni, who was technically not a sapphic relationship. She was a monogender character. So I was like, eh, that was kind of cop out. <laughs> cop out. Yeah. Back then, I don't think uh, gay relationships, let alone pan relationships, were much of a thing in games. I would have totally dumped Liara for Jack. Heck yeah. No, that sounds like a good time to me. Yeah, like, I, it's like, sorry, Liara, I'm dating this hot, tatted up gal with a shaved head and everything. She's cool. You should still be able to romance Rex and his entire species. Speaking of Bioware, Dragon Age 4's locations appear to have been confirmed thanks to a recent art book. And it seems like a lot of the game will be taking place in the Tevinter Imperium and as yet unvisited land within the franchise's world of Thetis. It's from the Bioware Stories and Secrets from 25 Years of Game Development book, which apparently Eurogamer just picked up over the weekend. Um, The location was set up in the final scene of Dragon Age Inquisition's Trespasser expansion, and although this was over six years ago, there are many other plans for the future of the series have changed in the interim. What kind of biome are we looking at here? Well, the artwork shows a glittering city surrounded by water, almost which almost certainly is Antiva City, the capital of Antiva, an area which borders Tevinter to the east. And there's concept art for an Antivan crow, which is also shown a theatrical assassin celebrated for their mastery of stylish slang, who wears an elaborate mask, wields a glowing sword, and has several actual crow sight. That's pretty freaking cool, even though if you're an assassin... I don't know if I'd want to call attention to myself with like shiny blades and crows and fancy masks. There's also an image of the skeletal Mornwatch who guard Thetis from occult threats and hang out in a necropolis. So it's full World of Warcraft kind of stuff here. Yeah, sure. Sounds like it. Sounds kind of cool, though. But whenever you have a, a glittering city, you also have a seedy underbelly. So I suppose we should expect that. Navarra apparently borders Tevinter to the south. And then there are also images showing the Lords of Fortune, a treasure hunter's guild based in various places, but founded in Ravain. And the Deep Roads, the dwarven tunnels which span all of Thetis. And if you played the original Dragon Age, the Deep Roads are also where the the monsters live, the the zombie-like monsters. So we're going to have dwarves and zombies. They're not like zombies. Um, I can't even describe it. Uh, It's the... Dragon Age equivalent of the White Walkers who come in giant waves. Uh, Darkspawn, that's what they're called. Oh, okay. So they're just, uh, I see what you mean. They're kind of zombies, but not zombies. Our zombies are different, quote unquote. It's worth noting that Dragon Age 4 has gone through a couple of reboots at various points while Keystaff had changed behind the scenes. And actually, as Eurogamer points out, the Bioware book points out that longtime Dragon Age contributor Mike Dara is still executive producer, so it's a little bit out of date in that front. Uh, well, still, it's something to go on. Yep, I am looking forward to it. I'm not extremely excited about Dragon Age 4, but I hope it's good, question mark? Question mark? Uh, I mean, I don't know if it'll be a good place to jump in, but if I read the reviews and it says, hey, this is actually a really good game, I might give Dragon Age another try. On the Staying on the Western RPG tip, Uh, The next chapter of Elder Scrolls Online is called Blackwood. This kicks off a year-long Gates of Oblivion story, and is indeed the trailer shows some evil druids using a prisoner to summon an Oblivion Gate or something of the sort. Blackwood is part of Black Marsh, which is where Nadia wanted to go in Elder Scrolls 6, but we're going to Hammerfell for that. Ha ha ha. At least there's a sweet Argonian in the Blackwood trailer. Yeah, there is. Uh, Blackwood is a marshy area. It borders the Black Marsh. And that's kind of where I wanted to go for Elder Scrolls Six, is I wanted to to see the Argonians and, and hang out with them. That's not happening in Elder Six Scrolls as far as we know. It seems to be we're going to Hammerfell. Nothing's confirmed yet, but that's just where the winds are blowing, so to speak. But... This trailer, uh, well, it had a had an Argonian in it, like an assassin that was helping to free this prisoner who was being used to summon the, the Oblivion Gate or something like that. So that was pretty cool. It looked really awesome. Argonians are just the coolest race in the game, frankly. Elder Scrolls Online is still going, and it has a very dedicated community. While it has improved measurably, I just find myself kind of shrugging it off. It feels like it is a clear step below Final Fantasy fourteen. If I wasn't taken up with Final Fantasy XIV, I'd probably give Elder Scrolls Online a try because I am that much. I am quite interested in the Tamriel universe, just not nearly as invested as the Final Fantasy universe. 
Okay, that is our RPG news. Let's continue on to the RPG release corner. This is a segment in which we talk about some of the new RPGs that are coming out and highlighting the reviews and what people are talking about in lieu of an actual review. Sometimes we'll be able to review some of these games and sometimes we won't be able to get to them because, oh my gosh, RPGs take a long time to finish, but we definitely want to give to at least spotlight some of the RPGs that are coming around at any given time, Nadia. We do. Um, as you say, they take so much time to finish even so much time to just play enough to get a really good impression of them. But we are an RPG podcast, and we want to talk about as many RPGs as possible. That is our that's our MO. Having said that, the first game on the list is a game that you've actually been reviewing for IGN. That is Ease 9. It's out February 2nd on PlayStation 4 with PC and Switch later in the year. By the time this podcast goes up, the review embargo should be up. Nadia, what is your take on Ease 9? I'm really enjoying it. I'm not finished it yet. It is the one complaint slash praise I have for it is that it's extremely close to Ease 8, not just in the way it plays, but also in a lot of the mechanics you encounter. For example, there is an essential part of the game that emulates the guarding your base from monsters in Ease 8. Uh, There's just a lot of the shops are familiar. A lot of the mechanics are familiar. But that's okay because... Like Ease 8, Ease 9, it feels really good to play. So much fun hack and slash. A little bit of strategy here and there, just enough to still kind of keep your not, your your mind numb. And one thing I actually really do like about this game above Ease uh, 8 is that you have these things called gifts, and they're just powers that you use on the overworld. For example, Adol, who becomes the quote-unquote Crimson King after this weird chick throws his cosplay party and declares, you are all monsters now, whatever that means, he can use a kind of a zip line, go from place to place, and he can use it from quite far away, so he can really zip across town with that thing. Uh, as you join more characters, they give you your they give you their gifts so you can share them. There's like um, Heaven's Run, which lets you run straight up walls, there's, uh, I forget the name of it, but there's a, a skill that lets you glide. And so basically a lot of the game takes place in this town. It has a big prison town. There's a big uh, secret to solve, et cetera, et cetera. And you can really Batman the hell out of this town between running up the walls and, and zipping along and, and using your wings to glide from place to place. So it's a lot of fun to move around in Ease 9, even though it is an extremely familiar game. But uh, if you liked Ease 8 and you're not a, don't have any major objections to playing a game a lot like it, um, you should like Ease 9 quite a bit. That's interesting because my impression of Ease 9 was that it was somewhat different from Ease 8, like maybe more of a contained area moving from a city, like moving from a wild kind of island to more of a city and urban setting. And then also having these characters, uh, these party members that I would kind of describe as Genshin Impact XPs. <laughs> well, there. I mean, E's characters are always a little bit overproduced. They're always they are definitely a little extra this time around because they're monstrums. But they do appeal to me in that cheesy ass anime way. They're a lot of fun in that regard, and that's how they use their gifts. So it, it all just kind of comes together. But you are right about how it is a little bit more of a contained area. You do get out later in the game back into the wilds, but. Much of the main gameplay revolves around town and seeing what the mystery is there. And that's why you have your gifts so you can get around easier. I mean, you can fast travel too, but it's it's kind of fun to just use your, your gifts to, to go to secret little places. Like at one point I was just kind of running along the roofs and I noticed there was like this little courtyard and I dropped into it. And I found a treasure chest and it was just like this nice little area with a, someone has set up a chessboard and and chairs and it had a tree and it just looked like a nice little backyard and I stole their shit but, but the point is they had a nice little place a little place tucked away and I thought it was like a really nice design decision and Ease 9 kind of has a lot of things like that just a lot of surprises a lot of fun things to seek out uh the characters there is a lot more story this time around and I think some fans of Falcom are a little divided about that because the Ease series has always been a little bit less on story compared to something like the Trail series, even though we're not talking about as much narrative as you get in the, in the Trail series, not nearly as much. There still is quite a bit of story, quite a bit of dialogue, and quite a bit of exposition. It's, it's interesting. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on in the story, but there is, of course, the usual amount of anime nonsense. One of the characters, Hawk, is the usual Sundere, I'm going to kill you character. So you just kind of wave him off. 
there is actually a really adorable character, Krisha, I think her name is. She's the white cat, and she's the little she's the girl with the with the kitty ears. And she's I was thinking, oh God, here comes a stereotypical cat character, but no, she's just a a very sweet little girl who's who's trying to learn about the world, and she can, just happens to be able to to run up walls like a cat. How's the performance? You know what? The demo performance was not great, but I think that the patched version is what they gave to the localized version of the game, thankfully. There is some slowdown a little bit in the town. I heard that when the game first launched, there was a lot of slowdown in the town, but they've since rectified that as much as they can. So I don't notice any huge frame drops in the town. There is some, though. Outside of town, I haven't noticed any problems. How about the localization? I think it's fine. Um... But maybe I'm not the person to judge because I didn't think the initial localization was that bad for Ease 8. Maybe I was just on, I don't know if I was high when I was playing or something, maybe. <laughs> but uh, but this time around, I don't have any major complaints about the localization. Sometimes the voice acting is a little bit cheesy, but it's not bad. Do you have a score in mind uh, for the review at this point? I'm thinking like at where I am currently, you're looking at it's an 8 game, an 8.5 maybe it's not nearly as, it's not quite as mind-blowing as Ease 8 because Ease 8 was like the first step out into the 3D realm and they really nailed it the first time around. They're playing it safer with this game, which is fine because it's still a great game, but it doesn't have the the innovation. Plus, I think that maybe some people will be annoyed by the fact that you are contained inside the town. It is a big town, but you're contained in it for uh, quite a few, quite a while, like a few chapters at least. The other big RPG release, it came out last week of the recording of the podcast, is Atelier Ryza 2, which seems to be getting an equivalent response to the first Atelier Ryza. I actually wrote a little bit about this, Nadia, for Rock, Paper, Shotgun in my column, The Limit Break. And ah, I was talking yes. a bit about how I was genuinely surprised by the success of Atelier um, just because the series has been around forever. Do you know how long Atelier has been around for, Nadia? How long? It's been around since 1997 on the original really? PlayStation. Yeah. Oh, oh, I have a lot of respect for long-lived RPG series, even if I don't play them myself. And Gust always just kept cranking them out, kind of sticking to a relatively similar formula, which is to say have like really charming and uh, protagonists and relatively low stakes environments and a really deep crafting system and never really stretching itself too far beyond that. But then Atelier Ryza comes out and it's a noticeable step up in terms of graphics. They really streamlined the the actual chemistry system. The combat's like pretty good. Uh, the cast is very charming. And of course they have large thighs, which became like a marketing <laughs> angle. Thick. It became it became very much a meme. And the result was that Atelier Ryza easily broke sales records for the series. Um, if you look at the Steam uh, concurrence for Atelier Ryza versus the previous game in the series, it had like a peak concurrent of like 4,000 players versus like 500 for the previous game. So that just wow. shows how much of a leap Atelier Ryza was on PC. And then not only that, Atelier Ryza looked really good on PC. Especially compared to the console versions, it was running 60, 4K 60 frames per second. And I think 60 FPS is a big change in a lot of ways uh, from 30 FPS, just like in terms of the game feel and everything. And that might not matter a huge amount for an RPG, but I think it does a lot for kind of the feel of the world, as it were. Yeah, so I'm actually really curious about this game. I'm wondering if we jump into it, if you haven't played the first one, because I've always just kind of ignored Atelier games. So uh, if I, gosh, if I have the time after everything's done with ease, maybe I'll give it a try. I've seen some reviewers say that they would actually recommend picking up Atelier Ryza 2 first, and if you really dig it, maybe going back to Atelier Ryza, because... They refine quite a bit in this game to make it an even better experience. Like, for example, they've updated the, the they've continued to update the battle system, which mm -hmm. was kind of this combination of turn based strategy and real time inputs. And now they've added chain attacks, which are uh, which is pretty cool, honestly, because it gives you an opportunity to just keep racking up more and more and more damage. And I love doing that in RPG. The, the more damage multipliers I, can, multipliers I can get, the better. One thing I will say, and this is going back to Ease for just a second, people were asking, oh, can I start with Ease 9 or Ease 8 or whatever? And with Ease games, absolutely, just start wherever you want. The story is 
mostly inconsequential. There's like links between them that are kind of funny. Like there is a reference in uh, the in Ease Nine where Adol is basically pulled into jail immediately because everything he's done across the world has gotten the attention of the Roman Empire, who basically owns the world. So they're questioning him in prison and they're asking him things like, you know what? A lot of ships seem to sink when you're on them. Is that a coincidence or, or what's going on here? So, and and things like. So you lost this sacred treasure that you were given, huh? So just stuff like that. So Adol, you're pretty bad at this. I'm just yeah. a tourist. <laughs> and that's the funny thing. Like Adol's, his responses that you can give are just kind of like, oh, I don't know. He's just so not surprised at the fact that he was pulled in because he just knew it was coming. Well, Nintendo Life called Atelier Ryza 2 the best game in the series so far. And... Its pros are new rune dungeons add much-needed focus. Battle system provides plenty of combat strategy. The signature alchemy is more flexible. Lot looks and sounds great and docked in handheld modes, and the new traversal abilities are great. As for the cons, uh, gathering resources can still be a pain um, because you have to do different... Like I mean, it's a, an alchemy game, so you're going to spend a lot of time right. gathering resources, kind of like Breath of the Wild in a way. And in fact... I would say a lot of the art style feels like it's deliberately kind of mimicking or cribbing from Breath of the Wild. Would you say that? Yeah, I would say that. And that is definitely the style at the time. Yes. Uh, it also looks a little bit like Genshin Impact, though, of course, Genshin Impact came afterwards. So, But that just kind of really frames their their individual inspirations. They're very much going for that kind of Breath of the Wild look. I think so, and I think the reason why a lot of developers are going for this Breath of the Wild look is because it's safe for the Switch. It's a stylized, interesting look that they know will work well with the Switch, so they that's kind of what they go for instead of the, oh my god, ray tracing, because even though we are in the new console generation, as I have proven, you cannot secure a console at the time. Boo. Boo. Some of the other cons, side missions are often dull, worlds still composed of small segmented areas rather than a true open world experience, and the Japanese-only voice acting may put some players off, so all things to consider. But I think that the Atelier series has taken a major step forward with Atelier Ryza, and I think that the Blood God is now watching intently. (laughs) The Blood God has turned his burning eye towards the anime girl. And finally... Uh, we didn't talk about this much last year, but Haven is now out for the Nintendo Switch and the PlayStation 4 after previously being released for PS5, Xbox One, Xbox Series X, and PS5. It is kind of this interesting, uh, very stylized RPG. They lean heavily into the romantic component of it. There's a little bit of a persona feel and the way that the characters interact and build up the actual bonds. And then there's a kind of simplified, streamlined, turn-based JRPG battle system. Yeah, uh, this was one that I certainly meant to check out last year. It just slipped right by me, like, more quickly than any other game. And I was very disappointed in myself. I might give it a try on the Switch, see if the performance is any good. Because it did look interesting, despite the fact I'm hearing it's kind of a simplistic game is more about the relationships and the characters. Uh, that's fine with me. From what I saw of the previews, it seemed like interacting with the characters was kind of sweet and nice, and they're living in an empty world, so all they have is each other, and that just hits me where I live. I remember when Eric got code for Haven, he was initially pretty hyped up for it, but then after playing it for a while, he was like, eh, I'm not that into it. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that he actually played it. Yeah. Hey, he was really hyped for it, and that's too bad that he was just kind of deflated at the end of it all. Yeah, like, it just didn't hit him that hard, ultimately. It looks really pretty, though, but it just sort of failed to break out. We'll see how it does on Nintendo Switch. Yeah, I think this is its big chance to really get in front of the audiences, and it will be the test. As for me, this isn't strictly an RPG, but a new round of content dropped relatively recently for Record of Lodos War, which is this Metroidvania. And I have been really digging it. Oh my gosh, Nadia, the Art in that game is so good. I didn't know that Rector of Lotus War had a, a, a Metroidvania behind it. It has this wonderful, lush 2D hand-drawn kind of look. And basically, you're playing as this elf gal who is a really well-known character from the actual anime slash the books. 
and she can use magic. Um, and you start out with wind magic or fire magic, and you can switch between them. And so if you're using fire magic, you're charging up the wind magic. And if you're using wind magic, you're charging up the fire magic. And that's how you traverse your way through the actual individual levels. And you're quite powerful and you have a bow. So that's another thing that you might find of interest, Nadia. And the bow is mm -hmm. used to traverse the world by shooting arrows to open up doors and that kind of thing. And then you also have magic powers that can be used to clear the screen as necessary. But it's not easy per se. Like you can get into situations where you can end up dying relatively easily. The boss battles are a lot of fun. It's kind of a streamlined, souped up, Castlevania Symphony of the Night. That sounds pretty cool. Do you have to know anything about the anime to really get everything out of it? Heck no. <laughs> That's good, because I never touched it. I don't know a single thing about the anime. I think that they're bringing in characters uh, from the anime, because periodically she'll be like, hey, it's you. And I'll be like, yeah, <laughs> that this guy. guy. <laughs> the guy with the blue hair and the sword. Uh, him. Um, there's a really cool fight where you're fighting these two genies. And mm -hmm. once a fire genie and once a wind genie. And so you have to, it's almost like a bullet hell kind of situation because you're having to continually switch between the wind and the fire in order to be able to absorb their attacks. And That's the cool. actual like, and the, the fire genie will be sending like pillars of fire at you and the wind genie will be shooting tornadoes at you. And it gets really hectic and chaotic as you're trying to hit both of them. Because if you use your fire attacks and the fire genie, he'll just, you know, uh, absorb them. Yeah. That's yes. pretty cool. It is pretty cool. So so they added episode levels three and four that continued to deepen the mechanics. And I don't know. It's just uh, it's really grabbed my attention. So I wouldn't necessarily say that it's on the level of Hollow Knight. Uh, there's definitely a kind of artificiality to the way that the levels are designed, where you have color coded locked doors and that kind of thing to open up. It's almost like Super Mario World in that regard. I was thinking literal Metroid. Yeah. But I still am really digging the actual animation and the combat. Speaking of indie RPGs, let's talk about the indie RPGs that we're looking forward to in 2021. Don't go away. Okay, Nadia, earlier this month, we did the 2021 RPG preview in which we talked about a lot of the bigger RPGs that are coming out this year. But I wanted to, as part of my ongoing push, my New Year's resolution, as it were, to focus on smaller RPGs that are happening as well, the RPGs that have the potential to break out. I wanted to put a focus on some of the smaller indie RPGs that will be coming around this year. And so let's just run through them really quickly. First up on our list, Nadia, is She Dreams Elsewhere, which you describe as a psychedelic RPG about a woman fighting nightmares in her coma. Very Undertale-like, albeit with a ZX Spectrum color palette, or refused to call it ZX Spectrum, by the way. <laughs> I noticed. Eric and I talked to developer Davian Gooden last summer, so that was a previous episode. I think if any of these RPGs are going to break out this year. I think that She Dreams Elsewhere will be the one because a lot of people are already talking about it. It has a, a certain vibe to it that reminds me very much of Undertale with, again, the ZX Spectrum color palette. And uh, I am definitely curious to try it out. I'm not sure exactly when it's coming out this year. I think that it's just a general 2021. But when it comes out, um, I will be ready to give it a go. I love the music in it. Exactly. The music is just just listening to the trailer alone is just something is so so wildly soothing about it, which is an oxymoron, I know, but it's just the way I feel. What were some of the things that you learned from uh, Davian Gooden when you were uh, previewing She Dreams Elsewhere? Uh, he was just talking about his inspirations and how m most uh, hilariously a lot of mistakes become uh, inspiration. I asked him specifically, why did you choose that color palette and... I forget his exact answer, but I'm pretty sure he said it was it was an accident. It just happened to happen and it just stuck. <laughs> so I'm like, is this symbolic? No, it just happened. You play as Thalia, an anxiety ridden, comatose woman on a journey to defeat the nightmares. You know, I I know that this is a popular trope for RPGs, but whenever I see something like that, I'm just like, oh, here we go. It is definitely one of the more worn out tropes for an RPG. 
but you know, hell, so is uh, so his child uh, falls into a strange world and gets lost. That would like you have with Undertale, and that became so much more. So maybe this could become so much more as well. I was playing Omori, and that game was like pretty good and everything. I think it's really well executed and well done. I love the art style. I like the shifting perspectives, but the actual premise just really bores me of a kid who is suffering from the trauma of having his sister die and all of the characters, you know, are dealing with that individual trauma. It's like, yes, unpacking and dealing with trauma is definitely a thing that our generation does a lot. But I guess that it's a topic that's been done so much at this point that it does it it pings off me a little bit. Have a fresh outlook. Have a fresh outlook on it. Is all I'm asking. That's fair. I think that uh, since everyone, since games are now like it's now acceptable to use games to talk about that kind of thing, and everybody wants to do it. But and it's a good way for people to cope with their with their personal trauma, whether they're making these games or playing them. But you're right. Some of the premises are a little bit worn to the point that where they want me to feel sorry for this character or root for them i'm just kind of like eh, well sure go for it i don't have that investment because i'm so familiar with the trope but as you said if they can turn it on their head somehow and really make it their own in a way that gets me that renews my interest gooden says that they have been struggling with depression and that his goal is to make it take those experiences and create something to help others cope. That's what She Dreams Elsewhere is aiming toward. The rise of social media and growing conversations about mental health, I think it's necessary to take a look at what we're really going through on a day-to-day basis, not only accepting and normalizing that, but also understanding that we don't have to be okay all the time. There's support systems in place in different ways to cope. I think the battle system looks pretty good. It has a little bit of an Undertale vibe to it, though it doesn't have the kind of weird bullet hell aspect to it. No, I'd say it's kind of a cross between Earthbound and Undertale, especially in terms of, when I think Undertale, I think of that graphical style that's being used in She Dreams Elsewhere. The overworld is more, the overworld is very Undertale as well. So it, it is definitely Undertale inspired. And heck, I am, I am glad that we can talk about trauma through games. Uh, who knows, maybe this will really kind of resonate with me in the end. What's interesting is that I think that Gooden actually finds the comparisons to Undertale kind of annoying. Oh, sorry. (laughs) My apologies. In regards to the comparisons to Undertale, Gooden said uh, to Forbes that it annoyed me a ton back then, but now I've just accepted and embraced it, even though the comparison isn't that accurate nowadays. It's also pretty funny looking at those old comments versus the reception now. Some of them weren't entirely off base, but dang, those people could be brutal. Uh, Because apparently there was a development mix-up in which She Dreams Elsewhere was initially black and white. And that's why people are like, ah, it's just an Undertale uh, copy. Mm. Yeah, uh, I could see that being the case. Uh, Well, if it's different from Undertale, then by all means, I will play it and say, hey, this is actually quite different from Undertale. But from what I can see, just the graphics remind me a lot of Undertale, not to mention the content. I hope that the actual combat ends up being like something that matches up to the actual mood and everything. Because a lot of these RPGs tend to give it a little bit of short shrift, I would say. Yeah, Undertale's combat made a lot of sense in the context of the world that you were in. I don't know how this particular combat system works. I know that there's certain mechanics like link-ups and all of that, but otherwise it looks kind of standard for uh, an RPG. PC Gamer says, She dreams elsewhere's turn-based fashion seems rather ordinary at first, but a quick look at the skills shows some dreary thematic stylings. My favorite one is probably Insult. Its description reads, Don't hold anything back, verbally, that is, and lowers an enemy's defense for two turns with a chance of stunning them. You can heal yourself and your teammates using green team bottles, kind of like Persona 5, and exploiting elemental weaknesses stuns to foes for a turn. So it's very Persona aspect of it. Yeah, so now we're dealing with Undertale Persona. Ah, I'm okay with that. Undertale Persona's fine. That'd be pretty cool. Uh, Let me romance all the monsters. It's also, quote, a genuinely scary game. And the end of the demo left me with more questions than answers, setting up an intriguing mystery built out of a troubled person's psychology. So we got a little bit of a horror feel to it. Yeah, I can deal with that. I am curious to see where it all goes. So it's reminding me a lot of Omori, which actually came out late last year, except that I think Omori might have had better combat. I, I really liked the 
the way that the emotions were used instead of actual like elemental weaknesses and that kind of thing. So both have similarly great art. The art in Omori is amazing. And She Dreams Elsewhere also looks really good. She Dreams Elsewhere looks really, I think the color palette works really well for the content and the emotional feel it's going for. And I'm definitely interested in that soundtrack because everything I've heard so far is just like really, really reaches it at me. Most of the RPGs on this list have a really distinct aesthetic that make them look extremely good. Another one, a big one that we've been talking about for a few years now is Chris Tales or Cree Tales. I'm not sure how you would actually uh, pronounce it. I'll go with Cree Tales. <laughs> I previewed it and I cannot remember if it was Christ Tales or, or Chris Tales. <laughs> I'm going with Chris Tales. Sorry, everyone. All right, Chris Tales. Chris Tales. Um, Nadia, you played a preview of it last year. So basically, to break it down, it's a turn-based RPG set in, I believe, Colombia, or at least heavily influenced by Colombia. And it has a time travel mechanic, which is kind of interesting. So things are split into three different perspectives. So you'll see on the left, it's in the past, in the middle, it's the present, and in the right, it's the future. And so you'll see characters who are young on one side and maybe like dead on the other. And this affects the combat as well. Yes, it did affect the combat. Uh, for example, you could uh, throw water on a monster and move time forward, and that that armor would rust. So it was a it has a really interesting use of mechan- of time mechanics on the fly, which is quite different for an RPG. Because when you think time travel in an RPG, you think oh, Chrono Trigger, zip 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 back and forth through the through the uh, time periods. No, this is as you said, the screen is divided into three when you're in a town or whatever. And one side you see the past, the middle you see the present, other side you see the future. And yes, you could see a young character in the past and you see their old counterpart on the other side. And maybe the old person has a problem that he could have solved when he was younger, but oh no, regrets, I can't do it now. So what you would do is you would use a little frog companion to jump between the time periods right then and there and say like, talk to the young guy and say he could say, oh, uh, here's a, a potion that uh, that I, I or sorry, he could say like, oh, I need a potion to feel better or whatever. And you would give him the potion, and he would drink it, and his his uh, older self would would recover. So it, it's just really interesting how you do that stuff on the fly. You don't you don't stop what you're doing, go back, or stop what you're doing, go forward. It's a uh, it's really interesting. I'm hoping that the final game pulls it off because it's extremely ambitious. So I know it delayed once already, which makes sense because there was so much coming out at the end of the year anyway. That's fine. Everyone's delaying because of the COVID virus. And I am really hoping it turns out to be as good as it seemed to be through the demo. Certainly the hand-drawn art is gorgeous. It reminds me a little bit of, uh, say, Indivisible. Yeah. Uh, it's not quite as animated as Indivisible, but that's by that's on purpose because it's more of a almost a pop-up storybook look. But there's also a dystopian aspect to it, despite it being extremely colorful. Yes, there is the conquering empire who is doing bad things to the people. And uh, it's interesting how you can walk through the town and the the uh, present side seems fine. And on the other side, everything's kind of broken down and decayed. And you can fix that. Like there is a quest where on the future version of the town, the water has risen to flood it. And you can go back to the past or the present, whichever it was, and fix that sewer issue so that the water level in this in the future lowers. Like I said, it's extremely ambitious, and I hope they pull it off. Me too. I, I think that if anything, this game might be the one that has a chance to break out versus dream, She Dreams Elsewhere. You might be right. I think that if it's as ambitious and as well put together as it seems, people are really going really gonna to enjoy it. Moving on to a sequel to one of my absolute favorite RPGs of the past decade, we have Darkest Dungeon 2 was entering early access this year. A new trailer dropped last year, late last year. PC Gamer did an interview with it. If you go back through our archives, you can see some interviews that we've done with the Darkest Dungeon crew as well. A few things that stand out to me, Nadia. First of all, Darkest Dungeon is famous for being unrelentingly bleak. Apparently, Darkest Dungeon 2 won't be as dark. But it's a dark dungeon. It's the darkest dungeon. I know. Apparently, it's slightly uh, slightly less dark, so (laughs) it is merely a dark dungeon rather than the darkest dungeon. They installed a light, a nightlight. (laughs) 
<laughs> the things that I really loved about Darkest Dungeon was a I love the art style, which many games have copied since it's iconic. I love the narrator, which is kind of similar to uh, Supergiant and that kind of thing, like mm-hmm. Bastion, who is narrating how horrible everything is going at any <laughs> given time. <laughs> that sounds like a lot of terrible fun. I like the rogues gallery of villains who come into your town that you compose parties of and then head into the darkest dungeon to explore and the, like the super messed up bosses that you fight. I wasn't a huge fan of all the grinding that you had to do. Uh, like the fact that you were fighting the same boss multiple times and yes, they were more mm. powerful, but at a certain point I felt like I'd kind of hit a wall with that game. So I hope that darkest dungeon two kind of addresses it. Something that stands out, Darkest Dungeon 2 is going to be 3D, Nadia. So it doesn't look like it's shedding the kind of distinct style that the original Darkest Dungeon had. But the fact that it's not straight up 2D makes me kind of go, oh, really? Uh, I hope it looks good. Is it like a first person perspective or a third person perspective? It's just just like a rotating camera. Oh, I see. Well, that might be interesting. That sounds like it could be cool. If they turned it into a first person game, I would flip a table. That's true. You you would be on here ranting for the entire hour, I think. <laughs> I really liked its like strategic version of 2D combat. It could be really intense because one of the things that was really fun about Darkest Dungeon was that you would enter a dungeon and you could be on. I was like, well, I'm just going to go on a quick run. And if you ran into the wrong enemy at the wrong time, everything could go pear shaped and you could lose your entire party <laughs> because they've all gone insane and they're hurting one another or they're like refusing to attack. And you're like, no, I was just trying to do a quick run to be able to get some experience. Oh my God, I'm about to lose my high level party. There's a real tension to the permadeath aspect of the game. I hate that so much, but I do (laughs) love the idea that you can look upon a Lovecraftian horror and everyone goes insane. Really, really well done in the way that they compose the characters. And I cannot wait to play this. I I don't normally play games in early access, but between Record of uh, Lodos War and Darkest Dungeon 2, apparently uh, I'm making an exception. Oh, you didn't mention is Lodos War in early access? Yes, ro- like Record of Lodos War is in early access. That's why they released, they're releasing more content as they go. They previously uh, only had the first two kind of levels, and now they've added levels three and four. Yeah, so I could see a lot of people really jumping on early access more than ever, thanks to Hades' success. A game that's been in development for quite some time now and is currently in early access, Grifflins, which is by Clay Entertainment. I feel like we noticed this game some like several years ago at this point. And I love the 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 reviews so far for early access have been, quote, overwhelmingly positive, according to Steam. And the one that grabs my eye immediately in terms of top reviews, Slay the Spire had a child with Mass Effect. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> well, there you go, Cat. I know it is a card-based game, card-based combat. You can still, though, talk your way out of trouble with dialogue trees. It's funny, actually. One of my one of my best friends online, whom I've known for many, many years, since the 90s, we were both in the Cyber 6 fandom, if you can believe that. Uh, her husband's working on the game, and uh, as far as I know, everything's going well. Grifflin's, uh, so RPS did a early access review of it around this time last year. And then Matt Cox, who is no longer with RPS, RIP, but said, I don't know what to make of Grifflens at the time. At first, I was close to adoration. It's an unusually story-focused deck-building roguelike. And it's from Clay of Oxygen Not Included and Don't Starve. That sounded wild to me even before I learned that it's about moseying around as a bounty hunter in an alien city, doing odd jobs for the locals and building up a network of friends and enemies as you work towards pulling off one last big gig. Parts of it are very impressive, and those parts are very impressively tied together. Decisions constantly come back to haunt you in ways that feel seamless. Thing is, it gets flabby, and the parts where you're actually playing cards just aren't that great. Ooh, that sounds bad, because it it seems like the cards are a big part of this game. And after playing something like Slay the Spire, you can't have, you can't slack off with your card system. You gotta have something exceptional. I don't know, though, because Slay the Spire is so focused on cards. It's all about the cards. It's literally only about the cards. Whereas Grifflands is much more exploring the world, uh, meeting people. I would almost feel like the relationships and everything that you're developing might be more important. And the cards are secondary to that. Yeah, that could very much be the case. I hope it is the case, because if I have a good story and good interactions with characters and I have a, a weaker battle system, it doesn't bother me nearly as much. 
Also, apparently you can pet the quelt or the vorox. Is that what it is? A vorox? It's a little uh, dog thing with horns, and I think it's cute. The important thing is you can pet it. You, the important thing is you can pet it. I think that's the one good trend in video games of recent, of late. It really is. I like how you will be called out if you cannot pet the dog or pet the cat. And you <laughs> should be called out because, but come on. I think the best response was when Hades was initially called out for not being able to pet Cerberus. And they really went whole hog on petting Cerberus when they finally put it in. Uh, but Matt Cox said, I'm a bit uncomfortable with the way I know I'd have enjoyed it more if not for Slay the Spire and Monster Train. It's competent enough, but it doesn't sing. I plumped for a strategy that seemed pretty obvious, and it turned me right to the very end. I was never excited to land a new card. Very few of them transformed what I was capable of, and instead they just seemed to slot into logical gaps in my strategy. Now, the framing for the negotiation game is much more novel than the game itself, and the one for combat doesn't do anything I find especially interesting. It's decent, it functions, it's work, it's fine, but I miss my train. Well, there is the fact it's in early access, and this was a review from what you said last year, so a lot June 2020, yeah. Yeah, so a lot could have changed by now. For sure, and uh, definitely a game to continue to keep watching, like Clay Entertainment. I don't think they've had a miss yet, honestly. No, everything they do, they're one of those companies, they're kind of a little bit like Supergiant, where they generally produce really good games, really original, interesting games, so I don't see any reason why this will be any different. I'm certainly ready to give it a try whenever it's ready. Nadia, you put a game called Book of Travels on this list. Could you tell me a bit about it? Yeah, there's a lot we don't really know about Book of Travels yet, but it's been described as an actual RPG where you do not have your hand held. It's not a matter of go out and fight monsters so much as it's go out and explore. See what you can see. I don't think there's even a core point to drive you. But what's really interesting about it is that it is kind of an MMORPG, Except there's only a few people per server, so you might meet these people, you might not, and if you meet them, you can adventure with them. And that sounds a little bit too much like Fallout 76 for my comfort, but it looks really relaxing and really cool, although I don't know if I'll fall in love with an RPG where the the goal is to just wander around. I think just seeing the words sort of MMO immediately make me side-eye it and not want to play it necessarily. You can't interact with characters by text, but you can send them emojis and stuff, I guess a little bit like Journey. Oh, it's so it's sort of a ambient multiplayer, as it were. That's the impression I get. I might be totally off base because I, I don't know for sure just by reading what I read, uh, but it, it could be. So what about this game? Like, do you feel like it has a chance to break out? Is it like really exciting to you? Not extremely. It's just uh, kind of a looking at it like, oh, that might be interesting. I don't know if it'll become a huge, huge thing, but it could definitely become something that has a cult following to it. I do like cults. And cults are pretty cool. Cults are not cool. Do not join a cult. <laughs> the Blood God does not recommend that you join a cult unless you join the cult of the Blood God. Join our Discord now. That's the only good cult. <laughs> and finally... A game that has been keeping, I've been keeping an eye on for a little while now, and I really hope it comes out this year, is Eastward. Not strictly an RPG. I would say it's much more like The Legend of Zelda, but oh my gosh, those graphics are gorgeous. Eastward is one of those games where I forget for a while that it exists, and then it comes back into my view, and I'm just like really excited, and I hope it's coming out tomorrow, and then it disappears for a long time again, and I just forget about it. What is it about this year, these past couple years that makes people want to make dystopian worlds, Nadia? I don't know. I mean, we live in such a perfect, great society and it's sunshine all the time. I, I Maybe people are just really down for some reason. <laughs> yeah, something that I've noticed about a lot of these RPGs are dealing with depression. Uh, they're dealing with dystopian worlds. And yet they also have like really bright color palettes as if they're trying to desperately make you happy while also dealing with these really weighty subjects. Which I, I like the, the balance of that. I kind of like it when something's colorful and cute and oh my God, it's actually really dark. Kind of like how Adventure Time was actually a, a show about nuclear war. Oh my God, that's really dark. Oh, we didn't know that? Yeah, there's... Spoiler alert. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's obvious from the very start, there's a big hole in the planet. Oh, is that how it is? There's also an episode where, like, uh, Jake and Finn are beachcombing, and Jake keeps finding baby booties, and he's like, where are they all coming from? And then I realized, oh, right, this is a show that takes place after a nuclear war. So, dead babies. 
Dead babies everywhere. <laughs> well, I will be playing Eastward when it comes out, no matter what, because it turns out that I am just a total sucker for anything that looks even remotely like Eastward, especially if it is kind of vaguely RPG-like, which is looks like it is. But we haven't heard much of it. It sounds like it's been kind of delayed and everything by the pandemic, because what hasn't been delayed by the pandemic? So oh, fingers crossed. It's a really beautiful looking game. And speaking of games that have maybe been delayed or we don't know what's going on, but might coming out might be coming out in 2021. Uh, chapter two of Deltarune. Really hoping we see that. Oh, yeah. It's uh, speaking of Undertale, it's about that time, isn't it? It is. I know that Toby Fox is hard at work and I really enjoyed the demo. So I'm hoping that uh, we get more this year. All right, that is, those are the indie RPGs that we are looking forward to in 2021. As for the RPG that I'm looking forward to the most, I am really looking forward to playing Darkest Dungeon 2. Darkest Dungeon is among my favorite games of all time, even though I eventually kind of burned out on it. I put a lot of hours into that game. I really hope that Darkest Dungeon 2 has a much better console port. I think that was maybe one of the only things that was kind of holding back a little bit. Um, we shall see, but... Nadia, what is the RPG on this list that you are most looking forward to? I think either Chris Tales or maybe Eastward if we actually get it. But uh, I think we're almost certainly getting Chris Tales. And I think, like I said, if it pulls off what it wants to pull off, it'll be it'll be a pretty great game. I think that She Dreams Elsewhere has a chance to break out. It's on like multiple best of lists or most anticipated lists. And it does have an amazing soundtrack. Yeah, I mean, either way, I will be playing it, so I'm not worried about the chances of She Dreams elsewhere. It seems like that's already kind of the darling for the year. All right, that is our list. What indie RPG are you looking for? Is there a game that should be on this list that we did not include? Send us an email at cat at bloodgodpod.com and let me know what your thoughts are. Okay, Nadia, let's continue on to the track of the week. Okay, it's time for the track of the week, the segment in which we pick a song from our favorite RPG because music is so important to understanding the genre that we love. This week, we have a song from Ease because Ease 9 is coming out. See if you recognize this tune. Yes, that's Sunshine Coastline from Ease 8. And as usual, it has a really high energy soundtrack, Nadia. Falcom sound team, especially this the, when they do Ease, put so much energy into their games and their soundtracks. You could be in like a really sort of dark, dank dungeon and they'll just have a screaming guitarist behind you the whole time. And I love it. You wrote, Ease 8 begins with Adol washing up in a new land after a shipwreck, per usual. And this is the song that he basically wakes up to. It's one of the most energetic and engaging game start songs I've ever heard. The opening 17 seconds still pump me the heck up. <laughs> they do. I mean, it's a very, it's one of my favorite E songs, period. And E's is a, a series with a pretty good soundtrack. So it's such an unusual choice for a song that's that kind of puts you on an abandoned beach because it has... It doesn't really have a, a, a mournful sound like you'd expect or even a, a tropical sound. It's just a, a really a get up and go sound, which which really fits someone like Adol because he's an adventurer. All he does is get lost in places and explore. So that really drives him. Ease 8 is composed by the Falcom sound team, which is headed by Hayato Sonoda. Sonoda has been composing Falcom game tunes since 2001, including the Trails of games. Other staffers on the team include Takihiro Unisuga, Yukihiro Jindo, and Mitsuo Singa, who is freelance. And a lot of Falcom music is over on Spotify, Nadia. Yes, they were one of the first ones to upload their music on Spotify, which is one reason I like Falcom. They, they tend to go with the trends that other Japanese developers ignored for so long. They were always a PC developer, so they always had their stuff available on PC, which is, which is how I got into Ease in the first place. I uh, downloaded Ease 6, and I really enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, they put their soundtracks on Spotify and you should absolutely give them a listen because they, uh, they put a lot of work into their, their music. I mean, heck, they're the sound team. That's what they do. 
I just added it to our list of the best RPG music. Oh, heck, it's a good song, isn't it? It is a very good song. It's high energy. Like, it just makes me want to get going, like a lot of Falcom music. Yeah, exactly. That's what Falcom music does. It just drives you forward. It kind of reminds me a little bit of, like, the Lufia 2 soundtrack, which we're, uh, right after this episode, we're going to record the Pantheon of the Blood God episode. And so we'll be talking a fair amount about the screaming guitars in Lufia 2 as well. <laughs> there are several. Okay, thanks for listening to the Track of the Week. If you have a Track of the Week that you want to submit, send us an email at catabloodgodpod.com or just DM me over on the Discord. Speaking of the Discord, we have a mailbag channel and people are using it, which makes me very excited. So it's letter time, Nadia. It's letter time. Nadia, last week we talked about the anime RPGs that we loved specifically from the 90s and the RPGs that they helped create. Beware the Slime says... I feel like the odds of getting a new licensed anime RPG are tied directly to the influence and success of Dragon Quest. In the 90s, it was far easier to convince folks like Bandai to turn their properties into RPGs thanks to the rampant popularity of the story-focused, turn-based style RPGs that Dragon Quest inspired. Today, Dragon Quest is still a juggernaut in Japan, but is still mostly a niche property internationally. Combine this with the polluting costs involved with modern game development, and almost any licensed game needs to make sure it appeals to as large an audience as possible. This means focusing on more action-oriented fares, such as third-person action-adventure and fighting games. Heck, even Final Fantasy has been joining in on this trend. I know lots of anime properties have the potential to become great RPGs, but in today's market, the chief concern seems to be how to maximize profit over what would be the most engaging experience. Well, heck, beware the slimes. Now I'm depressed. <laughs> well, you know what? It's still preferable to when they take a property and turn it into a mobile match three game. You are right, Nadia. And it's not all gloom and doom. The Super Robot Wars games still exist. There you go. And they're still fun, right? Right? It's still fun. It's still fun. We were talking about Record of Lodos War. Ruka wants to mention a different Record of Lodos War. When we were talking about the uh, anime RPGs, they mentioned, unless I missed it, there was no Record of Lodos War mentions. There's a SNES RPG with tactical elements, which probably hasn't aged as well as its contemporaries, but was still an interesting game to try once the fan translation came out. More interesting for me is the Dreamcast RPG we received a few years later. It plays a bit like Diablo, but with more customization and RPG-like options that make it a fun time. In addition, the story ends up really coming through for fans of Record of Lodos War. Without spoiling it, it pays off with revelations like KOTOR does for Star Wars fans, though to be clear, story is not a huge focus of the game for much of it. So, yes, that was a good one. The reason I didn't mention it was because while I'm aware of it, I'm also not extremely familiar with Record of Lodos War, so I didn't want to talk about it in too much depth. I, like I said, never really touched it, but I did have a manager when I worked at Canada's Wonderland, the amusement park. He was huge into, into Record of Lodos War, so I got into the good side by pretending I liked anime and that, of course, I really liked games, so that was no problem. And I really earned a lot of favor that way. It was the end of the season, so I didn't care. I have been aware of Record of Lodos War for a long time because it always seemed to be that DVD that was sitting off to the side that nobody was necessarily picking up, but it had at least an interesting name to it? Yeah, it was definitely a shelf warmer in your local blockbuster. And I think it had a certain amount of popularity because one, it's one of those animes that I remember people would choose for their message board avatars and their big clunky signature pictures. It was around. I don't, I don't know if it was as popular as some of the other anime out at the time, but it, I certainly remember the character designs. It had that cool elf girl. There you go. I do remember the Elf Gal. Elf Gal. I know that when the Metroidvania came out, I was like, <laughs> Record of Lodos War. But once I started playing it, I was like, I really dig this. I am into this whole dang look. Yeah, I will definitely give it a try when it comes out because I, I'm always down for a good Metroidvania. Although I, I did not like Hollow Knight very much. Gasp. I hear that Hollow Knight gets really good around the one third mark. Like it takes a turn and then people start to go, oh, so that's why it's so special. Yeah, I, I understand that, but part of it is also, we were talking earlier about gloomy games and how at least people try to guzzy up the graphics to make it look a little cheerful. Hollow Knight is just so dark and dank and depressing to look at that I just, I, I lost interest, and it's not like me to usually lose interest through a game's visuals. Honestly, that's fair. Um, I only got to a certain point. I didn't get all the way through it. I wouldn't mind picking it up again, though, because once you get to Hornet for the first time, it starts to get, like, 
pretty good and it just keeps going to new levels from what i'm able to hear so there's a reason that hollow knight is so beloved i I understand that i might give it another try sometime okay that is it for our episode this week thank you for listening if you enjoyed the show follow us over on social media at the underscore catbot for me over on twitter and nadia's at nadia oxford and if you like the show leave us a review it brightens our day makes the show more visible to various people is very nice also you can contribute to our patreon at patreon.com slash bloodgodpod if you starting at the one dollar level will give you access to our discord which is a very bumping discord we had our first meme just recently nadia (laughs) we are true we have truly been baptized we've been baptized in bagels yep bagels 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 And we have wonderfully named channels like Snacks of the Blood God. I don't think I visited that one yet. Oh, it's pretty good. Uh, There's lots of really great pictures of food in there. People really love showing off the food that they cook, which is which is fine. I've just never been that kind of person. I'm not a I'm not a foodie. People like every time I come up with a new channel, people are like, well, we got to have this like terrible pun like tracks of the blood god get it (laughs) (laughs) yes anyway our discord is awesome you should go check it out and you can do that if you join us uh at one dollar and above okay thank you to everybody for listening we'll be back next week as always but for nadia myself we'll be back and happy adventuring Thank you.